Welcome to the Good Fiction Podcast. Join us as we continue with things that Charlie did. Chapter 16. The brand new metallic blue Jeep with soft top arrived early the next morning. The young man who'd been paid well to deliver the new rental vehicle looked tired, having driven all night to be in Cudad Norte by 8 a.m. The disappointment on his face was grave when he saw the Ford Escort that he was going to have to ride back to Mexico City. Wimpy, girl car. The young man wasn't pleased with the situation Already cranky from less sleep than needed, he passed on a locked briefcase to Charlie and gave him the keys to the Jeep. Before Charlie would let the teen go, he disappeared into the restroom with the briefcase, opened the combination. He remembered without looking what he had written what the combination was easily. He also pawed through the cash to make sure it hadn't been tampered with It hadn't. The courier had had no idea he'd been carrying a fortune in U.S. currency. Charlie tipped the boy well, gave him the keys to the gassed-up escort, and sent him on his way. He was glad to get that behind him. Driving the escort had really become a pain, and worrying about the money had too. He now had transportation that would enable him to reliably travel the jungle roads and enough cash to purchase the land and pay the laborers or use for other expenses. Along with the cash came a checkbook from which Charlie could write checks on the account Frank set up for him in Mexico City. The money was now where Charlie could get to it. The first thing that needed to be done was Purchased the gas station. Maria wasn't going to be able to help with the details. Other than Margarita, Michael, and Mr. Garcia, Charlie was a little paranoid about the people he could trust. Now that this was all really going to happen, his determination was spotted with little pieces of nervousness like melted drips from a Dairy Queen cone splattered on the ground and no longer usable. Most of it was still there and served its purpose. Nervous but determined, he decided to fight through the language barrier himself and see if he could handle the sale by himself. After more thought, he realized the situation couldn't be too bad. The kindly old gentleman must be sympathetic to the cause, otherwise... Maria and the others wouldn't have known he was interested in selling the land to him. So he figured what he would do is simply lay some cash out in front of the guy, get his reaction, then take it from there. When it came to actual paperwork involved, he'd just have to wing it. He faxed Frank a list of questions involving the sale of property in Mexican law This really needed to be done correctly. Dot the T's and cross the I's, as foster dad used to say jokingly. Do it right the first time, and that has a way of keeping problems from creeping up later. His theory on the cash worked. The man that owned the gas station, whose name turned out to be Antonio Barrera, 
simply smiled with the reassuring look of a child who'd won some great victory. It really was that simple. Frank was able to produce the necessary documents in Spanish to transfer the land into Charlie's name. Legally, something that wasn't done much around there. It wasn't that the people there purposefully were breaking the law on deals that involved selling land, but this was a place where a handshake and a promise were just as good as any legal document. There was no protest from Antonio Barrera, though. He had plans, namely to get out of Cuidad Norte as soon as possible. Who could blame him? Things were probably going to get ugly. Charlie was reminded of the old Steve Miller song, Go on, take the money and run. Once Frank got the proper work faxed into Cuidad Norte, they were signed, and then the nice friendly face that was the first person Charlie had ever set eyes on in Cuidad Norte was gone. A chunk of American cash in his pocket and heading to Monterey. Charlie was able to understand enough Spanish to catch that the guy was going to visit his grandchildren. Somehow, Charlie figured he'd done the guy a favor by relieving him of the burden of the gas station. Charlie immediately rounded up his belongings, settled his bill with Mr. Gomez, and moved into the small office space that housed the gas station's phone. He spent so much time there, he felt like he was living there anyway. Besides, it was important that he distanced himself from Maria and her family in order for them to be safe. He'd have to wait for her to contact him in order to decide what was to come next, too. As she put it, get at the root of the problem. An out-of-business sign was placed in front of the station as soon as the documents were signed. Charlie figured he'd keep them open for the residents and build a small business on the side that would provide employment for a few locals, but for now, it was better to shut the place down. There were only a few of the village residents that had cars anyway. For them, he'd put the word out that gas was still available, showing the community that he cared about them was going to be an important part of this process. Putting the out-of-business sign out front was his first challenge to the drug lords. Word was going to hit them fast and there might be some sort of harsh reaction from them as well. There really was no telling and the reality of the situation was that things were gonna be like that during the entire process. Garcia paid Charlie a visit as soon as he heard that the sign was up. It was a perfect time for them to be seen talking together. Most people would think Garcia was expressing his concern for what Charlie was doing instead of helping to plot a way to make it successful. They sat in the office, the door closed, and freely discussed the details of the situation. The first order of business was for Garcia to fill Charlie in on just exactly who the enemy was. Up until this point, they had only referred to them as the drug lords. Garcia wanted to make sure Charlie knew what he was about to be up against. Charlie 
with his loose-fitting jeans and worn boots, didn't bother to take a red bull cap that had a band of stained sweat where his black hair touched the inside off his head. He clunked his dust-stained leather boots on the counter after sitting in a green padded chair with rusty metal legs. The chair looked as if the attempts to patch it had been given up on years ago by the way the foam stuffing peeked over the vinyl in the spots of various shapes. The chair, like the situation in San Miguel and Cuidad Norte, torn, in need of repair, forgotten, and easily to be tossed away without noticing or even caring. That became even more apparent as Garcia told Charlie in detail about the Santiago crime family. For generations now, they had literally controlled the people of San Miguel and Cuidad Norte. Their primary method of operation was to be the only real source of employment. All of that was illegal, except for the gas station, which Charlie now owned, and some private property. Everything was owned by the Santiago's. Once of age, to be of use, certain teens were chosen to be runners. Those who refused, like Juan, were made an example of. Not many refused. Margarita and Michael were next on the list to carry drugs for the family until their usefulness had been used up. Then, if the family felt they had been loyal, they would be allowed to go on their way. If not, well, they had ways of dealing with that too. Garcia believed that a teen found shot a few years back had done his duty for the Santiago's, but for some reason they didn't feel comfortable about turning him loose in the world with the information he had gained. Garcia continued to explain what he knew about the family. Things were now controlled by Patricia Santiago, now in her 60s. She had taken over when her husband died several years earlier in a suspicious plane crash. It seems he was on his way to Mexico City to sign papers that would greatly reduce the amount of money his wife would get if something happened to him. Changing his will or attempting to was the real reason behind the crash, Mr. Garcia theorized, but it was, of course, never proven. Since that time, two of the Santiago's children, Enrique and Felipe, had been the key. They were the day-to-day operators of the business. Mama Santiago still had the final say, though, This much was all-known information that Garcia had been able to gather over the years. The family had built a huge fortune. Their home was really more of a compound. Garcia had actually only been there three or four times over the years for social gatherings he'd been invited to. Inviting him was really more of a slap in the face than anything else. It was designed to let him rub shoulders with the rich and powerful to intimidate him. If he ever had thoughts of actually trying to be a real cop, they wanted him to see what he was up against. 
The wealth was, however, impressive. Describing where they lived, Garcia felt would be a good way for Charlie to also understand even in more detail what lie ahead. He explained how the estate consisted of a huge mansion that had something like 14 bedrooms. Also on the grounds were three other homes, very nice brick two-story homes where others that worked for the family lived. What Charlie didn't let on to though, as Mr. Garcia explained, this was that he was not impressed. Been there, done that. Garcia did seem a little sucked in by the grandeur of it all, all the money, the big houses. Guess when you've tasted it up close, it's just not the same as when you only want to. The old saying about the grass is greener over there is only true if you realize that there isn't an over there. Garcia's description of the Santiago's lush green lawns, gardens, tennis courts, stables, and skeet range didn't impress, but did give Charlie a sense of the money and wealth that were involved here. After all, that was Garcia's intention, and his description was effective. Garcia then went on to explain what details were known about the two brothers, Philip and Enrique. Philip was in his mid-30s. He had the reputation of being a playboy sort of guy. He was known to have been educated at Oxford in England, meaning he wasn't a dum-dum by any stretch of the imagination. Garcia also was able to learn that he spent a lot of time away from the estate, skiing in Colorado, and spending much time with acquaintances made at Oxford in summers kept him away. But he still was very much in on the day-to-day -day operations of the Santiago's drug business. Enrique, on the other hand, was believed to seldom leave the compound. He and his wife of at least 10 years lived in the mansion along with their own twin daughters. Garcia knew his information because the twin girls were approaching kindergarten age and Maria had been approached about tutoring them privately. Enrique had an accounting degree from the University of Texas and handled the family's finances. The Santiago's drug business was huge. Garcia was guessing, but he figured they took in tens of millions per year and had been doing so for a long, long time. Rich, powerful, intelligent. But so was Charlie. Garcia finished giving Charlie all the information he had about the Santiago's and sat back waiting for questions. He'd been using his hands again to emphasize points, something he had a habit of doing, but now his fingers were interlocked behind his head. His boots remained on the gas station's office countertop. His hat now dipped down low on his forehead, giving him the look more of a cowboy in the Wild West than a modern-day small-town policia. There were questions. First... Where was this compound as Garcia described it? 
Not far from here, Garcia let go of the back of his head long enough to point south, then quickly put his hands back where they were. Those trails out there all lead to eight-foot-high concrete walls that surround that place. Seems to me like someone told me it's close to 100 acres, but I really don't know for sure. Anyway, on the road you took to get here when you first arrived, there was a crossroad. It's hidden by trees, and unless you know where it is, you can't find it. How far is the estate, asked Charlie. I don't know, maybe 50 miles back into the jungle until you reach the front security gate of the estate. So those guys I saw in camouflage, they work for Santiago? Yeah, they walk these trails all the time, you know, guarding the place. Charlie's chin went down to his chest a moment, then back up. That's not all they do on these trails. Garcia didn't respond. There was no need to. The point was well taken. A hush fell over the small room like silence after a bad joke that no one felt obligated to laugh at. There was no joke, though. So what now, asked Charlie. Garcia was prepared for that question. Time had been spent on it and probably even a lot of time at that. More and more, Charlie was beginning to see that Garcia's desire to end Santiago's influence over the people was much greater than he had originally thought. His boots clunked to the floor and the front legs of the old green vinyl chair touched the floor again too. He went back to using his hands to illustrate his points. His right fist gently hit his left open palm. This is where Maria and Michael come in. They will be our eyes and ears so I can finally get enough evidence on these guys to put them away. Charlie nodded his head in agreement, but frowned at the same time. The teens were going to be in great danger as he expected. He waited for Mr. Garcia to continue with his explanation. Nothing was said, though, and, Charlie said, trying to get Garcia to finish his thought, well, what they'll most likely be doing is gathering information not only on the drug operation, but the attempts to, well, eliminate you now that this has started. Charlie cleared his throat and kept the conversation moving as if the comment didn't bother him. Okay, so how are they going to do that? Can you be more specific? He asked. They've already been to the mansion once. I know you didn't know that. They'll go back probably a couple of more times. They're being trained in the fine art of drug transport. They treat them real nice while they're there while they're, you know, using them. They actually spend the time around Mama Santiago and Enrique. Apparently, they want to be sure they can trust them before they send them out to work. While they're there, they hear things, see things, you know? I see, said Charlie. He was very concerned. He scratched his head, then ran both hands through his hair. Are we doing the right thing here? Hey, I thought you were the one that was trying to convince us, said Mr. Garcia. 
Yeah, yeah, but the last thing I want to do is, you know, there's been enough people hurt around here, and I'm, you know something, started Garcia? I'm glad to hear your compassion. It's a good trait. You're a good man, Charlie Duncan. Look, things are going to get, how do you say in America slang, hairy around here? You can bet on it. We can beat these guys, though. I've needed someone like you to help. Let's do it then, said Charlie. He realized the determination in his voice made him sound like a bad Nike commercial, but it was sincere. Mr. Garcia stood and extended his hand. Charlie shook it. They were making a pact like two boys who'd just built a fort and pricked their fingers to become blood brothers for life. This wasn't about forts, though. This was about life and death. Mr. Garcia reached behind his back where his untouched blue short-sleeve pullover covered his belt line. From that spot, he produced a holster and in it a gun. This is a 9mm, he said. You know how to work one of these? Charlie shook his head no and... Mr. Garcia began to show him the fine points of handling a deadly weapon. Hopefully he'd never again have to think about what was being taught, though. They both knew that that was wishful thinking, however. Thank you for listening. Join us next time as we continue with Things That Charlie Did. I'm Rodney Mathers. Goodbye for now.